Question 110. What do Christians pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, Your kingdom come, Christians pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, sinners brought into it and believers kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So we're praying about three different kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan, that it should be destroyed, and the kingdom of grace, that it would be advanced, and the kingdom of glory, that it may hurry up and get here. And the longer we live, uh, the more we delight to pray that way. So question one, what does the word kingdom mean? Well, it means rule and realm. Rule and realm. The word kingdom is used in the scriptures in two main senses. The first is rule. That is the reign or the exercise of authority or sovereignty. We might use the word government or kingship. And the other way the word is used is, is as a realm, uh, the sphere over which a king rules. His dominion, his kingdom, right? So it's kingship and kingdom, or rule and realm. A king rules over a realm, and so he has a kingdom, or kingship, over a kingdom, right? A king is a, has a kingdom over a kingdom. This is true of earthly monarchs. They receive authority to reign as kings, and they do so over a realm, that is, over a physical people and land. In the early 1600s, Charles I received authority to reign as sovereign over the realm of England. So its people and, his, and the territory were his dominion, his jurisdiction. And this twofold usage of king meaning or kingdom, meaning rule and realm, is also true of God as king or Christ as king. Alright? The Bible talks about God's kingdom rule in two senses his natural kingdom and his saving kingdom. God's natural kingdom or rule comes from the fact that he's the creator. As such, he sovereignly rules the realm of all creation or the entire universe. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So that's his creational or natural kingdom. The other kind of kingdom that he has is his saving kingdom or rule. And that uh, came into history in the person of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer King. This saving kingdom is most commonly in the New Testament called the kingdom of God. This king kingdom was Christ's message and it was the apostles' message. Matthew 4.23 says, Christ preached the good news of the kingdom, which is God's saving reign. The reformers rightly taught that this saving rule came in two stages, what we call 
the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. In other words, it's begun, but there's a greater fulfillment later. Right? So it's the already and the not yet. And you'll notice these phrases, the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. I personally like those phrases very much. You will often hear me say them in prayer or even in conversation. So when we are praying for the, the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory, what is it that we're praying for? To pray, your kingdom come, is to ask God to extend his saving rule. His natural rule, of course, can't come. It's already fully here. He, he's the king of all things by creation. That can't ever go away or lessen or go greater. But his saving rule can come. And so we ask that it advance. And as the old hymn says, oh, please make a thousand hearts your own. That's what we pray for when we say your kingdom come. All right. Questions about either the definition of the word kingdom as rule and realm or um, the two senses in which the Bible talks about God's kingdom, his kingdom as creator and his kingdom as savior, right? And this is the same way when we talked about how men are sons of God. We said there are two ways that men are sons of God, right? By creation, we are his offspring. The Bible plainly teaches that, but it doesn't major on that. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about that a lot. Because there has been a fall, men who are by nature the offspring of God are enemies of God, and, and God is much more concerned with his saving kingdom and people being in the relationship of his children um, by faith instead of just creation. So uh, men are in God, both of God's kingdoms, um, either fully or, or sometimes as an opponent. <laughs> um, so God has two kingdoms and people are in it or not, depending on, on their standing in Jesus Christ. Okay. Question two, does Satan have a kingdom? Occasionally you'll, you will meet a person who says, oh no, no, that's to give him way too much uh, respect and um, to give him what isn't his. But the Bible's answer to that is yes. He rules over the realm of this present evil age. Satan does have a kingdom. The existence of the devil's kingdom is clearly taught in Scripture. Luke eleven eighteen, If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? There it is. Satan has a kingdom, Jesus says. Christ's argument presumes the existence of a kingdom ruled by Satan. In Matthew 4, 8, the devil shows Christ all the kingdoms of the world, and he promises to give them to him. Presumably, he rules them, at least in some sense. They are his realm. Otherwise, this would be no temptation. There'd be no power in what he's offering. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, Satan is described as, quote, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit 
who is at work in those who are disobedient. In Revelation 2.13, Satan is said to live and have his throne in the city of Pergamum. That is, he reigns there. So Satan rules a kingdom, and his subjects are everyone who is disobedient to God. 1 John 5.19 sums it up this way. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. In the older translations, I think it's the whole world, the cosmos lies in the lap of the evil one. Satan reigns in every aspect of the world, in its philosophy, Colossians 2, in its religion, in its ethics, its speech, its motives, and emotion, except for those who are in the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 2, Satan is said to hold the power of death, a power over those who are held in slavery by their fear of death. He is also said to be uh, over every other aspect of this present age. A present age characterized in Galatians 1.4 by a single word, the word evil. Why is it evil? Because he rules over it. Yes, according to Revelation 12.9, Satan, quote, leads the whole world astray. Unquote. Just as an aside, there's a good example of where the whole world doesn't mean the whole world, does it? It can't mean that or there would be no Christians in the world. Yeah. But two things should be remembered about Satan's kingdom. It is First, it is not equal to God's. It is under God's control. It is subservient to his natural rule. Think about the case of Job. And the second thing about Satan's kingdom is that it is temporary. It has been, it is being, and it will finally be overthrown by God's saving rule. So yes, Satan has a kingdom, but it isn't equal with God's, and it's temporary. Question three. How will it be destroyed? Well, there are many ways to answer this, but my short answer is by King Jesus' great power. There you go. How will, this, how will the devil's kingdom be destroyed? By King Jesus' great power. Jesus Christ came as a mighty warrior king with authority from the Father to overthrow Satan's kingdom and establish God's. Hebrews 2.14 says Christ's goal was nothing less than to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery. Jesus came to set men free. In Matthew 12, Christ compares his work to that of robbing a strong man. First he ties him up and then he plunders that strong man of his goods. In other words, he's entering the devil's realm. He's overthrowing his rule. He's stealing his subjects. Praise God to be a, a slave to Jesus and no longer a slave to the devil. This is why Christ's driving out demons in the earlier part of that chapter shows that the kingdom of God has come. 
In Luke 11, the language of violence and armed conflict is even stronger. The devil is again likened to a strong man, this time fully armed, who is guarding his house. But Christ, referring to himself, says that someone stronger comes and overpowers him, takes away his armor and divides up the spoils. In Luke 13, 16, Jesus healed a woman, quote, whom Satan had kept bound for 18 long years. And he set her free. She was one of the spoils of his holy conquest. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all opposing dominion, authority, and power. He must reign until he has put all things, every enemy, under his feet. Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 110. He is now crushing the serpent's head, Genesis 3. He's fought the war in heaven, Revelation 12. And in all of these cases, he is the mighty king who won the battle. And so he is ushering in God's kingdom when he destroys Satan's kingdom. Question four, what is the kingdom of grace? It is God's active saving rule in the present age. It is God's active saving rule in the present age. You, brothers and sisters, as a part of the church, are the kingdom of grace. You are the subjects of it, and he rules over you with gentleness and love and law and power and with many, many gifts. In the 1700s, there was a young man in England who went to hear a Baptist preacher and was converted. His name was Abraham Booth. He was a general Baptist, and as he, he had a good mind, and as he began to study his Bible, he couldn't make it fit with what he was being taught. He couldn't find free will. He couldn't find other things. Well, finally, after becoming a convinced Calvinist, one who believed in the sovereignty of grace, he wrote a book that described his, his transformation, the, the change in thinking, and his new set of beliefs. And he called the book The Reign of Grace. What a beautiful title. The Reign of Grace. Jesus Christ rules in grace. The book is still in print. It's been in print for 250 years. Uh, it's really an excellent treatment of what many people would just call Calvinism. But it's, it's not about a party. It, it's about the kingdom of grace led by the King Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of grace is Christ's redemptive government in creating and ruling over his church. Several parts of this definition should be emphasized. First, it is saving. The object of the kingdom of grace is the redemption of men. It's not to improve society. It's not to bring justice through civil government. It's not to do a whole lot of things. It is to save men and women, boys and girls, from the kingdom of Satan and to bring them into the kingdom of grace or God or Christ. 
The kingdom is also not fundamentally about our wealth or health or happiness, whether that be economic or psychological or even physical. At bottom, it's about spiritual salvation. This is the reign of grace. It's about deliverance from all the power and penalty of sin and the one who holds that power, the devil. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it is saving. This kingdom of grace is saving. It's also active. The kingdom is coming. It comes now. The kingdom is not an idea. It's a, it is a dynamic, redemptive invasion of the devil's property. It's not ultimately the activity of men, although God uses them for this purpose. It's interesting. Men are never said in Scripture to establish God's kingdom. Only God establishes God's kingdom. Only Christ does that. Instead, it is set up by the supernatural activity of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But finally, it's not only saving and active, it's present. It's here now. It came in its present form when Christ was on the earth, and it has continued, and it has grown, it has never flagged, it has never disappeared, and it will one day be perfected. It is begun. So now is the time of grace. Now is the kingdom of grace. All right? Questions about that? Improvements? Questions? Question five, how are sinners brought into it? By the mighty and sovereign act of regeneration. That's how it's done. People are born again. People are, as we talked about this morning, they are raised from the dead. <laughs> they experience the resurrection. John 3, 3 and 6, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Colossians 1.12 says that the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. It is his work, not ours. John 17.2, the Son has been granted authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those that you, that is the Father, has given him. In Acts 26, Paul's testimony to King Agrippa was that Jesus had sent him to turn men from the power of Satan to God. So as one famous theologian from the last century who wrote a lot on the kingdom of God, George Eldon Ladd said, the kingdom is God's deed. The kingdom is God's deed. It's his work. It's his power. So that's how sinners are brought into it, we might be just as interested to learn in question six, how were believers kept in it? All right, we entered the kingdom of God by his sovereign grace, by his powerful work. How, how do we stay in it? The short answer is by his mighty works of sanctification and preservation. It's still not us. He will hold me fast. 
He will hold me fast. Or, as we said at the beginning, it's all by King Jesus' great power. In Jude 1, those who are called, that is, those who experience regeneration, are kept by Jesus Christ. You see, he doesn't do a one-time work of bringing us in and then leaves us alone or forgets about us or stops exerting power. He brings us in by his power and then he keeps us by his power. And that keeping is done by holiness. That's how he keeps us. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 May God himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be kept blameless. It's his work. 1 Peter 1.3-5 explains our duty in it. And of course, we have our, our calling to persevere in salvation. But it is Christ's great kingdom work to rule in our hearts. He alone can do that. And this should be a reminder, brothers and sisters, if we ever get complacent or forgetful, that our salvation is from one perspective, a life of warfare. It is begun by King Jesus entering the devil's house and tying him up and dragging you and I out. And then as the devil gets mad and comes back after us to reclaim us, it is Christ standing in front of us, protecting us with shield and weapon and constantly fighting for us. John Bunyan not only wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, How the Christian Life is a Journey, he also wrote what is oftentimes called... Uh, the second greatest allegory ever written in the English language after Pilgrim's Progress called the Holy War. But we don't need to fear. Martin Luther was right in his paraphrase of Psalm 46. What is it we sing? I love that phrase in A Mighty Fortress where he says Christ must win the battle. Not Christ will or does. Christ must. He can't lose. He cannot lose this battle. Christ, uh, God has secured the victory through Christ for us already. And so we can say with Paul in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Our warrior king fights for us. And so we imitate him. We take up the shield of faith and we take up the spiritual weapons of war and we go to battle with Christ against the evil one. And not only has Christ crushed the head of the serpent, but he works in us so that we too will put our heel on his neck and crack his head. We will win. He must win the battle, so we must win the battle. I love this lesson. It's so encouraging to know what Jesus Christ not only has done, but is doing for us. Question seven, what's the kingdom of glory? Well, it's God's perfected saving rule 
in the age to come. He's begun this saving rule. The kingdom of glory is what we have now, but perfected, made complete, reached its goal. So the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory are not two different kingdoms. They're different states of the same kingdom. The kingdom of glory is the kingdom of grace perfected. You know this old saying, I say it often, <laughs> you've probably read it, grace is glory begun. Yes, this is what this is rooted in. That idea is rooted in the Lord's Prayer and these ideas of, of the kingdom of God. Grace is glory begun. And so glory is simply grace consummated, grace perfected, grace fulfilled. The kingdom of glory is the righteous, redemptive rule of Jesus come to full realization. Or to put it another way, it is heaven. <laughs> it is heaven. It will be ushered in by the second coming of Christ when he will finally and fully destroy the devil and all his rule and realm. Then Christ will complete the grace of saints, turning grace into glory and fully conforming us to him. They will reign with him forever and ever in a state of inconceivable happiness. 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we are the children of God. Right? We're in, we're in the kingdom. We're in the kingdom of grace. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All right? Well, finally, uh, the answer to our question says something that might strike some of you as, as rather odd, maybe even, you know, kind of unreformed, uncalvinistic. What do you mean we can hasten the kingdom of grace and glory? What do you mean we can hasten it? You mean stuff we do can make it come sooner or later? Yeah, that's exactly what the answer means. Well, the question is, is that scriptural? Well, I've asked the question this way. Question eight. In what sense can it be hastened? And the answer is, not ultimately, but cooperatively, or we might say instrumentally. When we use God-ordained means, things happen. God works. And from the human perspective, the kingdom gets here sooner than if we had done nothing. And in reality, in, a, in real reality, that's true too. You say, well, that seems like odd language. Ah, it's Bible language. This is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where it says that we can hasten or speed its coming. Now, occasionally you'll find a translation that says that we are waiting eagerly or longing for it. But the verb has an active sense. It means to hurry it up to hurry it along, to push it, to speed it up. That's a better translation. Well, then what does it mean? Well, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that God has first foreordained everything that's going to come to pass, including the fixed time for Christ's return. So we can't speed up the kingdom of glory in an ultimate sense. But secondly, there are other scriptures that tell us that we can be the means whereby this predetermined date of the kingdom comes. 
We can be an agent. We can be an intermediary. We can be a channel through whom God works. Revelation 6, 9 to 11 is a, is a good example of this. So we can speed the kingdom of glory by, for example, repenting, by believing, by living holy lives, by preaching the gospel, by longing for and praying for Christ's quick return. We've seen this concept before. It might often strike us as odd. But you know that place where Paul tells Timothy, I have this posted on my desk because as a pastor, I especially need to remember this. Paul tells Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. Why? Because if he does, he will save himself and his hearers. Timothy will be a savior. He can save himself and save others. Yes, as a means. Yes, intermediately. Yes, as an instrument. Yes. <laughs> not ultimately, of course not. Only God is the Savior ultimately. But God uses means to achieve his ends. And that even includes the coming of the kingdom of glory. So brothers and sisters, do you, do you want Christ to return soon? Well, don't just pray for it. Don't just long for it. Witness. Pray. Tell your children. Tell your neighbors. Invite folks to church. Put them under the sound of the gospel. Give away a book or a tract. Live a holy life. And you can hasten the kingdom of glory. All right?